The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the Hump Day edition of The Yard. Hope things are well with you wherever you are today. One day closer to college football. It's always great. Bulldogs, of course, two and two. Got a big road trip headed to College Station, Texas, this weekend. Pretty excited about that. It's a long drive. It is. I mean, it really is. I'm going to make a weekend out of it, go down there and see some family, kind of enjoy the, uh, the opportunity to get down there, but also, too, uh, you know, having to drive nine hours uh, one way on back-to-back days, not necessarily appealing to me, but uh, I will be down in College Station, Texas, so we'll record uh, Thursday night, more than likely, so we can have that up and get on the road on uh, Friday. So looking forward to that. I do think State has a chance to go win this ball game. We're going to talk about, you know, what to expect from Texas A&M uh, in the show, you know, Wednesday is the normal preview day. We begin to kind of break down the opponent and, of course, preview the weekend on Friday. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Aggies today. Also, too, in your Portico uh, Legends segment, we're going to talk about one of the most memorable matchups between Mississippi State Texas A&M, a game that many of you are very well aware of. If you didn't watch it live or if you weren't there to experience it in person, certainly you've seen some of the footage from the 2000 Snowball. We're going to talk about that today. Pretty cool experience, to say the least. One of the more memorable bowl games, probably, of, uh, of our lifetime. Not just because Mississippi State was in it, but because of the fact we just didn't expect the great white north to visit Shreveport, Louisiana. But they did, and we won. So that's the better part of it, too. So, uh, listen, you guys, too, most of you have kind of kept up with NFL football the last couple of years. You know, I was probably an NFL fan first, you know, before I knew what college football was. But uh, Dak Prescott playing exceptionally well they're two and one could easily be three and oh you know they lost that opening game of the year uh to tampa bay and tom brady dak leads the team down you kick the uh you go ahead there late and of course you just leave too much time on the clock for tom brady but that's a pretty good measuring stick right there i mean you go up against the super bowl champions in their backyard in week one and you take them all the way to the brink and you're undefeated since. And then, of course, the, the, the ball game this past week against Philadelphia. And listen, happy to see Fletcher Cox make some plays. But, uh, you know, Dallas is a much better team at this point, I believe. Darius Slay also on the, on the Eagles, too. And so, you know, Bulldogs, says we've got a lot to root for on the NFL Sundays. We really do. Wasn't always the case. You know, a lot of times we'd have a bunch of guys on a practice squad or, you know, reserve-type guys or whatever. we got a lot of guys out there that are, that are kind of household names. In pro football, give a lot of credit to uh, Dan Mullen and his staff, you know, for recruiting, developing those players. And, um, you know, it's interesting, too. And I, I'm going to say this, you know, with as much love and admiration and respect as I possibly can. But uh, there's a lot of stuff out here. There's a bit of a revisionist history, you know, with uh, with Dan Mullen. You know, and there's a couple of things I just want to touch on here. Number one, I don't want this to come off that I'm any way ungrateful because I am. Very, 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 very grateful that Dan Mullen came our way and um, proved to be a great hire 
for Mississippi State. But, uh, you know, what's interesting about it, too, is there's, um, you know, one of the greatest stretches, obviously, in our history. But we left a lot of fruit out there on the tree, man. We really did. You know, of course, Mullen's first year were 5-7. and seven. You remember the, the, the big game that year? You know, there was a couple. It was really two. There's two games that got away from us in year one. It's the LSU game. You know, Chad Jones has the big punt return there, 97-yard punt return, and we can't make a tackle. Yeah, but ultimately that game ended, you know, with uh, Mississippi State knocking on the door. Tyson Lee, Anthony Dixon, Christian Ducre all down there low. And uh, we miss a jump pass to Marcus Green. I think it was Chad Jones that actually broke that up. Chad Jones was actually a great guy. Had suffered a really difficult uh, recovery from a major car accident down there in New Orleans. But um, that's when we let get away from us. But also that Houston game. Remember when the Houston game where, where Tyson hits Leon Barry to get us deep inside the Houston red zone. They rule him over the line of scrimmage. He wasn't, and we don't review it. That's just a young coach. But against a five and seven year, but we were all just so excited, even though we didn't go to a, go to a bowl game. You know, we, we blow out Ole Miss in the Egg Bowl. We feel like, you know what, we're trending in the right direction. 2010, one of the best seasons in our history. Not just because of the fact that we won nine and four and won a bowl game, but, you know, we beat some pretty big teams along the way. It'd be Georgia, be Florida, in the swamp, destroy Michigan, 52-14. I would say that's probably the funnest bowl game I've ever been to. That was a lot of fun. And maybe it's just because it's a helmet sticker type win. But a 52-14 win over the Wolverines, that's something we'll always remember. Of course, 2011, we go 6-6. Big Ballard had a big year for us that year and a big bowl game. You know, as we – I guess we win the Egg Bowl again and then uh, beat Wake Forest 23-17 there in the Music City Bowl. So at that point, you know, we had won, what, five bowl games in a row? Yeah, five in a row. You know, in three out in four years under Mullen. 2012 was kind of a weird year. You know, it's like we, we get out to the big start, we kind of stumble down the stretch, and uh, my guy Tyler Russell imploded there in the bowl game against Northwestern back in Jacksonville. And, and again, that was a good experience, but we just – we didn't finish. I never thought they were better than us. I just thought we didn't play well. 2013, a lot of people thought Dan Mullen would be coaching for his job after this year. A lot of, a lot of expectations were high, but, you know, we'd been kind of mediocre. You know, after that nine-win year, we'd you know, had a seven-win season, an eight-win season. You know, and by our standards, it was still pretty good. But um, 2013, you know, we're four and six with two to play, and then Nico Whitley basically takes over and, Leads this team to a bowl game. We went seven six winners. Excuse me, forty four seven winners to finish seven and six over Rice, and that was really kind of the Dak Prescott coming out party. You know, he was healthy, running the full complement of the offense, and yeah, it was Rice. But we kind of had some momentum heading into the next year, and of course, two thousand fourteen. Man, what an incredible year for us! Ten and three, and the only year that Dan Mullen had a winning record in the SEC. And that's one of those things, too. Maybe it's an indictment on us in our history, but it's like, you know, we remember this, you know, this great era with Dan Mullen, but we were basically 500 or worse most years in the Southeastern Conference and needed Scott Strickland and Mike Nemeth to schedule very, very intelligently when it came to non-conference football. But 14, obviously, one that goes down in memory, but it also is one of those things you look at in hindsight and say, you know what, man, we let a couple things get away. 10-2 and two in the regular season, and I'll never get over that egg bowl. We blew it, and I give Bo Wallace a lot of credit. And injured Bo Wallace went out there and beat us. He absolutely did. But a lot of it's on us. 
You got a one-legged quarterback out there. I think you got to make him be mobile. You got to go out there and make it happen. But we didn't. They weren't, They beat us. We didn't tackle. They beat us. You know, 15, we come back in eight and four year, and it's Dax uh, hurrah. We win the the uh, Belk Bowl, 51-28, and again, four and four in the league that year. Lose the Egg Bowl again, which stinks, Dax senior day. And I remember when we were out there on the field, it's like when they, they announced Dak and everybody's crying, you look around the stadium and and then there's uh, some of the Ole Miss players kind of taunting all of us because we're all, everybody's crying. I wasn't crying. You were crying. I wasn't crying. But I don't, I don't know if most of them were ready to go play the ball game. And then Dak fumbles and the next thing you know, the ball game's getting away from us. 2016, of course, uh, you know, that's the 5-7 and seven APR Bowl year. We went to St. Petersburg Bowl. Uh, Nelson Adams. Claimed fame, blocks field goal attempt to thwart the Red Hawks down there in the St. Petersburg Bowl in the Tropicana Field. It was uh, interesting, to say the least. 17, we expected to be really good. and We were we were a really good team, even though the record didn't necessarily reflect it. 8-4 in the regular season, and Greg Knox, uh, I guess the winningest coach in Mississippi State history, 1,000. He goes 1-0. And I'll always be grateful to that coaching staff, that transition staff, and DJ Looney, God rest his soul, he was on that group. And I really wanted to have that one win to kind of cap, you know, kind of cap his time here at Mississippi State. Joe Moorhead ultimately didn't keep DJ. But I know what it meant to those guys that stayed. You know, we were mainly you know, coached by GAs and some QC guys and a handful of coaches, and we, we beat the Heisman Trophy winner, Lamar Jackson. Probably one of the more unexpected wins in a bowl game for Mississippi State. And that ended the Dan Mullen era. So, you, know, you look at that, you know, we go, bowl, we go bowling every year under Dan Mullen except for year one. And that's what people get, you know, you get accustomed to that. It's like, hey, we know we're going somewhere. You know, I think maybe we, we want a little bit more, you know. And that's not to say, again, to be ungrateful for anything Dan Mullen did for us, but I don't know if you've done the math on this, but um, against Alabama, Auburn, LSU combined, Dan Mullen was 6-24. and 24. And you know none of those six came against Alabama, just in case you're wondering. But that's, uh, that's you know, it's a great run for us. But, the, you know, the fact when you begin to kind of look at it in hindsight and you say, you know what, yeah, it was a great stretch there, but we only had the winning season one time in the SEC – you know, it's like sometimes you look at it where almost kind of the definition of mediocrity at times. And so my hope is, is that there's a better run in, in us ahead. You know, maybe it's with Mike Leach, maybe it's with somebody else. But, you know, we always talk about, you know, the, the, the longer you get away from the, uh, the glory days, the more glorious they, they feel. And so, you know, we get a lot of this with Dan Mullen. It's like, well, I miss Dan Mullen. But, you know, there's a lot, a lot of mediocre years with Dan Mullen too. You know, we go back and – Look at all this stuff, too. And, you know, it's like, you know, Dan Mullen, I think, had as many, uh, you know, six-win regular season as he did not. You know, it was five and seven, eight and four, six and six, eight and, eight and four, six and six. And of course, the uh, 10 and two regular season, eight and four, five and seven, eight and four. I'd, I'd love to have an eight and four this year, wouldn't you? Absolutely would. But I just kind of throw that out there because sometimes we forget. You know, it's like these things happen. All of a sudden we think, well, you know, well, Dan Mullen would have won that game. Well, you know, I don't know that's true. You know, wish Dan the best down at Florida, as long as it's not at our expense. Appreciate everything he did here. 
But again, I'd like to think that we can do a little bit better at some point. I want to thank our good friends at Bulldog Burger Company, longtime sponsors of this show, man. I love going in there. You will too. The kids will love it. Your date will love it, whether it's a um, date night for mom and dad or maybe perhaps a first date for him and her or whoever. And so go by, check those people out. They know how to feed folks for sure. Part of a great family of restaurants that have served the Golden Triangle low these many years. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive right here in Star Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo. What a great, great facility that is. And then the brand new one, Lake Harbor Drive there in Ridgeland, Mississippi. Still the baby, still, still growing, still doing great, getting some really solid market penetration down there. I've had a lot of people tell me had great dining experiences at the new one down there. And, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're a Bulldog Burger Company veteran. Say, well, you know, we have Bulldog Burger in Starkville. Well, maybe next time you're down there in the Jackson area, you could give them those a shot there on, in Ridgeland. It'd be worth it. The other day, I'm trying to think what I had. I had the Pimentology ad bacon and uh, had the spring rolls, of course, because I need to be better looking at every chance I get. You know, it, it, it's a lot, it takes a lot of work to be this beautiful. And the spring rolls are part of that regimen for sure. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, let's talk about the Aggies a little bit. Before we get into this year's team, let's look a little bit at our history. This, the, the series record is tied at 7-7. So we got a chance to take the lead. We had the lead in the series, uh, you know, for a little while here. We've lost two in a row. But the series dates back to 1912. We played them for the first time in Houston, Texas. We got beat 41-7. And then stayed in 13 and 15, put together back-to-back shutouts of the Aggies, a 6-0 and 7-0 decision. We lose in Tower, Texas, of all places, in 1937, 14-0. So we began the four-game series with them with a 2-2 record. We didn't play again until the snowball. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Then we don't see them again until they joined the league. The 2012 year, that was kind of Johnny Manziel's coming out party. He wasn't Johnny Football to us just yet. And he came to Starkville and absolutely embarrassed us. So we absolutely could not stop him. Kind of one of those things in hindsight, you look back and say, you know what, I'm glad I got to see the kid play. As bad as it was for us, I'm glad I got to see him play. 2013, that's the Dak Prescott game when Dak went down there and got injured. But um, it was shortly after, you know, Miss Peggy had passed away. I remember so many Texas A&M players tweeting at Dak, talking about what a warrior he was. They win 51-41. You know, if we got we make a couple tackles on special teams down there, we're going to spoil Johnny Manziel's swan song there at College Station. But we didn't. They won. We just couldn't stop them defensively. 2014, you know, they come in here with uh, Kenny Trill. They thought he was the, the, the second coming of the Heisman Trophy for them. And uh, 48-31 winners from Mississippi State. And it was worse than that. They scored a couple touchdowns late to kind of make the game look a little closer than it really was. We dominated that game pretty much from start to finish. Big touchdown out there for Freddie Brown. I remember that. 2015, we go down there. We lose 30-17. to 17, And that was one of those games that just felt like we let get away. You may recall Aris Williams fumbled going in inside the red zone. Then we come out. We hit uh, Bear Wilson, who was basically – and one guy away from breaking loose for a, for a long touchdown, and we fumbled that football. We just couldn't slow him down. And once we finally had a chance to score some points, we kept shooting ourselves in the foot. So we lose that ball game. In 16, they come back here. And you remember, that's the year we were, we were done. I remember this. They played this game, I think it was an 11 o'clock start. There was nobody at the game. 
And, and Texas A&M was, I think, number four in the FBS playoff rankings. And so a lot of people expected them to come run through us. Well, Nick Fitzgerald had other ideas. We win the ball game 35-28. And I guess Christian Kirk had that big punt return right before the half that uh, there were, I think there were three blocking the backs and they miss all of them. Probably Mark Curl's crew. It's a joke. But we win the game. And then we go back to College Station in 17. We beat them 35-14 and really beat them up, too. I remember you know, Nick really had a great game. Jamal Peters uh, had a pick six to kind of put the icing on the cake there. Kellen Mond absolutely imploded in front of Mississippi State. 2018, they come back down here. And that's when Kellen Mond threw the pick to Errol Thompson to kind of cap the game. We win at 28-13. You know, Errol makes the pick. Next thing you know, Fitzgerald runs a little quarterback run there off the left side to put the game away. And we've lost the last two. 49-30, 28-14. We were competitive at times last year. Could not do anything offensively. Here's the thing that I remember about last year. Is, you know, we'd had some problems with Cole Smith uh, on the snaps. You know, it's like they were kind of rolling him back there. So we put James Jackson out there, and poor James just didn't couldn't call protections. And A&M took full advantage. K.J. Costello running for his, for his life the whole ball game. And it's still a 28-14 game. We were still in it. I think we were within a touchdown in the fourth quarter. And it's like, if we could just get any semblance of offense, we got a chance to get them. And that was a really good A&M team, if you recall. They just missed the playoff last year. And so – it's been a very competitive series, as the 7-7 seven and seven record uh, would certainly suggest. But, um, you know, the longest run, I guess, in this series has been the Mississippi State run. We had a three-game winning streak, 16, 17, and 18. That's the longest winning streak in this series between uh, the two agricultural schools. And it still bothers me that a lot of times we play them, we have to wear black rather than our traditional maroon. We love our school colors just as much as they love theirs. We just don't get out there and, you know, dance around in, you know, milkman costumes and have that sort of stuff. I mean, they they teach their own, but um, that's just not us. So uh, that's the series history. Let's take a look at what they've got going this year. All right, so the Aggies open up the season with a 41-10 win over Kent State. And uh, really looked like, hey, these guys look pretty good. I felt they were overrated to begin the season they, you know, they had some a lot of veterans last year. They've got some this year too, but you know you don't replace a quarterback and get a batter more times than not. And so, forty-one ten winners over Kent State, and I think people thought, okay, well this is a good-looking team. They go to Colorado, and we talked about that here on the show. I really thought A and M would struggle. They did. Colorado just didn't have enough in the tank offensively, and so A and M wins ten to seven, but I think a lot of people saw that and said, "Well, wait a minute here. They may not be quite as good as we thought." It's not a great Colorado team, but I knew the Colorado would play hard. They did. Well, then they they lose also lose a quarterback in that ball game to a broken ankle. Go with Calzana against New Mexico, and listen, they could have gone with me against New Mexico. I can hand the ball to Spiller as long as I can remember which side to hand it off to, and it's a thirty-four nothing win. And then last week in Arlington, they play Arkansas, who is a good team. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Arkansas is great, but they're a really good team. And uh, it's 10 points again. So they played two Power 5 teams and scored 10 points apiece. Of course, Colorado and Arkansas. So offensively, you know, they have become relatively one-dimensional. And so let's talk a little bit about, you know, offensively, you know, kind of what, what, what they're doing. And listen, and to be fair to them, you know, you don't lose your starting quarterback, you know, mid-year 
and then get better. It just doesn't, it just, life just doesn't work that way. If the number two guy was better, he'd have been starting in the first place. You know, occasionally some things kind of bust loose for you. But, um, you know, so they have, they have struggled offensively, you know, with their backup quarterback. And you know what? We would too. Most teams would. So the, the, the best player in the Aggie uniform, Isaiah Spiller. I don't think there's any question. I think he's a pro. He killed us last year. That was the thing that I go back and think about, you know, with, with last year's numbers and at that ball game. It's like, you know, as, as well as we played defensively, you know, we still struggled to get Isaiah Spiller on the ground. You know, if I, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you know, let's, go, let's go draft him. I mean, I think he's that good. I think he's a guy that will play uh, pro football for a while. Is he a star in the NFL? I don't know about that. But I definitely think that he is a pro. And kind of looking at last year's numbers, you know, it's, again, it's a 28-14 ball game. We had our chances. We absolutely did. But I thought the difference in the ball game was Isaiah Spiller. 18 carries for 114 yards and two touchdowns. One was a long of 26. Mine was only 13 of 23 with 139 yards, two touchdowns, and, of course, the pick six for Emmanuel Forbes. Emmanuel Forbes, which is kind of becoming Emmanuel Forbes at that point. But again, you know, I thought Zach Arnett did a good job against a team that kind of beat some people up last year. But Spiller, I thought, was a difference. I really did. I thought, you know, that they had kind of a running back by committee approach, and he was kind of the, the tip of the sword. But we got to slow that guy down. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That, that is job one. Slow him down, put the game in the hands of the quarterback. So, Again, 345 yards net, just a couple touchdowns, along a 67. So when you start looking at this and say, hey, you know, hey, we've had 52 attempts. He's got 345 yards, and, you know, 20% of them came on one play. I mean, he's averaging just 86 yards a game. It's still pretty solid. Uh, Devin, I can. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Somebody will text me and say, Steve, you blew it. I'm sure I did. You know, he has been a good compliment guy, too. 34 carries for 227 yards and a couple touchdowns. But just four rushing touchdowns on the year for AM. and uh And they've got a, a, an offensive line that has some veterans that they had to kind of rebuild some things, a lot like us in many respects. But they're going to want to get behind that offensive line and try to establish the run and kind of keep the game out of the hands of their quarterback, uh, Zach Calzada. All right, let's look at the, the, the passing numbers here. You know, uh, Haynes King won the job and then broke his ankle against Colorado. And then, you know, Zach Calzada made just enough plays to kind of make those things happen for them in a couple of ball games. But the numbers are very, very, very pedestrian. Quarterback rating of 106.8. He is 57 of 108 with three picks. Completion percentage, 52.78%. So right at 53%. So basically, every other pass attempt is incomplete. Just 609 yards, four touchdowns, and, uh, you know, long of, of 70. So, again, you start looking at this, and it's like, wow. You know, just 609 yards and then, uh, you know, a 70-yard play there. It really brings the you know, production level down, averaging 152 yards per game through the air. Not big numbers. And so, if you're Zach Arnett, what you're thinking is, if we can just get a little separation offensively, we can be very aggressive, have those run blitzes kind of hopefully hold things up and put them in a third long situation and make Calzada make plays because he has struggled to do so. And listen, he may be a great quarterback down the road. He's not right now. He's not a great quarterback right now. 
going to see some things this weekend he's probably never seen. Okay, so uh, Anaya Smith is leading receiver, 15 catches, 170 yards, a couple touchdowns, along a 27. The big daddy on offense for them in the passing game is uh, Jalen Widermeyer, that big tight end. This, this guy, if he stays healthy, he'll play in the NFL 15 years. I mean, he is an absolute monster. He, he's the guy that's had some big games against Mississippi State as well. This is a guy we got to find a way to defend. And, and let's, what's a struggling quarterback's best friend, right? It's a big, strapping tight end with good hands, and that's what they have. One of the better tight ends in America. I don't think there's any question about it. Kind of looking back, too, you know, at, uh, you know, he had four grabs against us last year. But he is a walking mismatch. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, this is a guy that's going to play professional football for a long time. Second on the team with 13 grabs. No touchdowns yet, but 159 yards. So he's getting some good, you know, run after the catch along a 29, averaging just 39.75 yards a game. So right at his average against us last year, right? Um, Damon Demas is a guy that they're really excited about. He's only got the four grabs, but he has a 70-yard catch and run for touchdown. And so you, you can kind of go on down the list here. It, it is not a prolific offense. It's absolutely not. Now, they do pitch it out there to Spiller sometimes out of the backfield. He's got 13 grabs on the year for 106 yards and a one touchdown. But uh, they got to find a way to get him going. If they're going to get to where they, they want to go, this is a guy that's going to have to kind of carry him there because I just don't think Calzada has what it takes to get him there. So this is a very vulnerable Texas A&M team. You look at all these things, you look at their production, and you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why, why were they ranked so high? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of defense. Defensively, they've got some guys that can really play. Now, they, now they granted, they lost some guys a year ago. They did get some guys back that elected to come back. But, you know, this is a group that's very athletic. And so I, I could see this being, you know, one of these 20-17, to 17-14 type games. Could be whoever scores a non-offensive touchdown probably wins a game. This is going to be a very competitive ball game. And really, to be honest with you, all the pressure is on them. It's absolutely on them. You know, people were projecting them as a New Year's Six team, and granted, you lose your quarterback, and so that kind of derails your plans a little bit. But, you know, they've got such a good running game and, and uh, defense. Today's podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. Fortunately, you can turn to Nerd Wallet's objective finance journalists to set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your own money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bill so I don't dread April every single year, managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup, putting away more money for retirement since I'm not going to do this podcast forever. Sorry, folks. And also boosting my credit score since good credit is like a real life cheat code. Saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. The nerds also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let nerd wallets, trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Bulldog fans, rodeo season is here. That's right, the Dixie National Rodeo 
get ready to roll, man. And uh, I remember being a kid, that was like the biggest highlight for us. My grandmother would get us tickets every year, and me and my brother would wear our cowboy outfits. We'd put our boots on, have our chaps, our vest, and we'd go up there, and just in case one of the cowboys got a little bit scared to get on a horse or a bull, we were willing to do it. Yeah, for sure. Guys, boots aren't just for going out to a country western bar and doing a little boot scooting. Maybe you got a little Texas two-step in your game. Tacovas can make you look better than ever. Absolutely. And here's the deal, too. That's the thing. The versatility of Tacovas is you can wear them somewhere nice or you can live life where you don't go gently. That's what Tacovas does for you. Yeah, it's a rugged, handsome boot. It's my favorite boot brand, and it should be yours, too. Be sure and check them out. Tacovas believes in Western for all people, and you can feel that when you go into their stores, when you walk in, you'll be greeted like family, offered a boot shine and a drink, and maybe even an adult beverage if you prefer, and you can get custom fitted for a new pair of Tacovas boots. You can get custom leather stamping or branding, whatever you need to make it feel somewhat individual. Look up your closest store at tecovis.com. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And you know what, partner? Point your toes west. A lot of people thought, you know what, they'll be okay. They'll be able to weather storm a little bit. Antonio Johnson is the straw that stirs the Aggie defensive drink. A sophomore defensive back, 6'3", 200 pounds. Out of St. Louis, 26 tackles. Now, I don't think that's St. Louis, Missouri. Not yet. Yeah, St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, so uh, 26 tackles for them to lead the team. Also, four pass breakups, too. So he is among uh, you know, the leaders in all the statistical categories that matter uh, for defensive backs. Aaron Hansford, linebacker, a, a transfer from St. John's College. Excuse me. I went to high school at St. John's. Forgive me. He's a grad student. Uh, so Aaron Hansford, 23 tackles for them, a couple pass breakups, a couple quarterback hurries. The guy that really is the centerpiece of this um, – Pass rush is Michael Clemens, also a grad student from Garland, Texas. 6'5", 270-pound defensive lineman. Has five quarterback hurries on the year and a forced fumble and a sack and a half. But uh, but but they are not really getting to the quarterback an awful lot. And um, I guess 12 sacks, it's a team. But what's interesting is, you know, Arkansas really kind of kept them on their toes a little bit. You know, with that, you know, they, they tried to run a three-man front and that sort of stuff. And I really thought that, uh, you know, A&M athletically matched up well with Arkansas. But um, Arkansas looked to be the more aggressive team on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Uh, defensive back, let me see here. There's another guy here I want to talk to you guys about. Oh, I remember, oh, I remember, oh, I remember that. Linebacker, Edrin Cooper. You remember him? We thought we had a good chance to get him. For a long time, Mississippi State was his leader. Linebacker out of Covington, Louisiana. We thought we had a good chance. Things turned late, and he has actually uh, you know, put put together a decent season for a young guy. Played in all four games, 12 tackles already. Also has an interception, a quarterback hurry. I mean, so, yeah, this this is a guy that we kind of identified early and offered, and you know, thought we had a chance to, uh, to get. Ultimately, we don't get him. 
But it uh, shows that our evaluation was pretty good there. He's out there making some plays. But, uh, you know, looking at numbers with them, you know, 33 tackles for loss, right? And then granted, some of that's a quality competition, but that, yeah, that's, that's moving the game. That's changing the line of scrimmage. And you know, we mentioned the 12 sacks earlier. Four interceptions as a unit, 16 pass breakups, 14 quarterback hurries. But I think when you go back and look at what they've done you know, against Power 5 opponents, I think you'd say, you know what, hey, it's, just, it's just a good team, you know, not, not a great team. Special teams numbers. Uh, Nick Castantino, and I'm sure I said that wrong, so forgive me, Nick. Uh, 20 punts on the year, averaging 47 yards a punt. That, that dog will hunt right there, right? 65 is the long, two touchbacks, seven fair catches, uh, 11 inside the 20. Nine punts of 50 yards or more. So don't expect a lot in a return game this weekend when it comes to punts. This is a guy that knows how to do it. So you'll probably see a lot of fair catches in the ballgame. Guy with good hang time, guy with good leg strength. Those are, those are pro-type numbers right there. Okay, field goals, Seth Small is the regular kicker, 6 of 7 on the year. Uh, missed one over 50. That's the only miss he has. Everything under 50, he is perfect on. His, his uh, longest season is 49 uh, yards. Looking at the kickoffs, and this is where we have to look at all this, right, because of the fact that um, one of our biggest weapons is a kick returner. Well, might be more of the same after last week. Caden Davis has had 13 kicks this year. 11 of them have been touchbacks. So only two kicks have been returned. Randy Bond also has kicked a little bit for them. Eight kickoffs and four of those touchbacks. So collectively as a team, 21 attempts, 15 of them touchbacks. So there will likely be a lot of balls kicked into the end zone. My hope is that A&M only kicks off one time. We don't even have to deal with that, right? Let's just go ahead and shut them out. My, I think Zach Arnett's group's going to have a good game. It's like one of those things, too, over the course of a week, sometimes I can kind of talk myself into it. It wasn't that hard this week. You know, the LSU thing, it was kind of sometimes a little more heart than head. But it's difficult, you know, to go on the road and win in this league. But we have done it before in this venue. And so I feel good about State's chances in this ball game, And I know what the Vegas line is. But um, I'm eager to kind of see what that line looks like there towards the end. You know, for sure. Those are the things that I look at and say, you know, these, these things always fluctuate late. And everybody always says, well, what does Vegas know? Well, they're just trying to get you to run to a message board and say, hey, something's going on with the line. Something must be going on. All right, so A&M averaging just under 24 points a game. That's about what I expect it to be. You know, I, maybe, maybe the first one to 20 wins the ball game. But here's the, the, the hit in all this is uh, I, they're allowing less than 10 points per game. And, of course, you get a shutout against New Mexico. You hold uh, Colorado to seven. You know, Arkansas is the only team that's been able to do anything with them. But let's be honest, Arkansas is really the only team with a pulse they played. A&M has put together 80 first downs this year, allowed 62. What's interesting is that over half of those first downs have come through the air. Rather interesting. As a team, Texas A&M is being outrushed. I bet you didn't expect to hear that today. 676 yards rushing. Their opponents have run for 683. What makes that even more interesting is the fact that most of the teams that have played A&M have been playing from behind. So you would think they wouldn't be running the football quite as much. But they have out their Aggie opponents have outrushed Texas A&M. 
where things have really been uh, kind of the rub for them is on the passing side of things. Despite the fact that they're kind of anemic at quarterback, 909 yards, which is not phenomenal by any stretch, pretty pedestrian. But they've only allowed 478 passing yards. So something's got to give here. Something's got to give between Mississippi State and A&M. We're going to go out there and throw it. And no doubt about it. And so they have been exceptionally good in pass defense. Only allowed two passing touchdowns on the season. And again, rather interesting. You know, maybe we see more of a running game this week. I don't know. Maybe we'll just see what we did against LSU. I know we got to go out there and execute. That's the bottom line. A&M has allowed us four touchdowns this year. And again, I think that's really more of a, of a testament to um, the quality of their competition rather than their defense. Even though I think their defense is very good, but I think the defensive numbers are skewed because of quality competition. Penalties, this is interesting too. Aggie opponents have been flagged 18 times for 110 yards. Texas A&M, 30 times. 30 times. So they are, they are a team that uh, commits the penalties. Third down conversions, they're converting to 42%. Clip opponents, just 32%. We've been really, really good on third down defensively. One of the best teams in the country. So we'll see how that plays out. A&M fumbled three times, lost it two times. Opponents have fumbled twice, hadn't recovered either. How about that? That's interesting. And again, just the 12 sacks. Aggie opponents have, had, have accumulated nine sacks on the year. A&M pretty good in the red zone. Uh, 12 attempts, eight scores. Six of those are touchdowns. It's not quite as good as we'd expect. And then uh, opponents, four of eight in the red zone. Four of eight. So there you go. That's kind of a rundown of those guys. Let's look at the uh, the passing numbers for Calzada a little closer here. But I think it's important to kind of understand, you know, what what's going to happen with this guy, what we should expect. It really is one of those situations where we, you've got a guy that is really kind of put out there and playing before he's ready. A guy that did, he competed but didn't win the job, and now he's having to do the job. And he's just a sophomore, actually out of Sugar Hill, Georgia. So, against Kent State, he gets in an 0-for-1 game, throws a pick. Only pick he threw. Only, only pass he threw was an interception. And had one run for 12 yards. Against Colorado, he was 18-of-38 for 183 yards, one touchdown. Ran it a little bit, too. Seven carries for 29 yards. So, the quarterback run is something we'll have to watch out for as well. Against New Mexico, that was, you know, that was a chance for him to kind of get his first official start. Kind of gets settled, 19 of 33 for 275 yards. Three touchdowns, a pick, and then ran 17 yards on three attempts. Against Arkansas, 20 of 36 for 151 yards and a pick. Ran five times for just two yards. So you, you see these numbers and nothing really jumps out against you. And, you know, Arkansas kind of plays a bend but don't break defense. You know, Barry Odom will dial up some pressure when he needs to. But he's going to see some pressure from us that he's never seen before. How will he react? This is a young quarterback again playing before he's ready. We have to use that to our advantage. We have to go out there and make their quarterback basically be a player for us. We've got to help him, help him be a contributor towards Mississippi State's efforts to win a football game. And again, you know, football is a crazy game. You never know what's going to happen. And people are like, oh, they'll figure it out. Listen, this is not a great A&M team. Again, they're getting by on defense. 
and uh, being able to run the football some, but they haven't been nearly as successful with the football uh, on the ground as I think most people anticipated. Uh, but that's what we're looking at with the A&M team. We'll get into that much, much later in the show, in the week on Friday, and we start picking these games. But if I had to call it today, and I know it's like, well, Steve, it's a homer pick. You always pick Mississippi State. Well, that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I picked us to beat Memphis, and we should have beat Memphis. I picked us to beat LSU, and we should have beat LSU. I'm picking us to beat A&M. And I think it is going to be one of those 2017-type ball games. I don't think it will be, you know, a shootout by any stretch of the imagination. But I, and I think a non-offensive touchdown could really be the difference, whether that be on a punt return or a pick six, something like that. that. That could be a big part of it. We just can't go down there and turn football over. We can't give them the short field. You know, we've been really good about when we have made teams kind of sustain drives. It's been difficult to sustain drives against the Zach Arnett defense. And so this is one of the more, I, w- I would say, offensively challenged teams that we've played. And so if you win the battle of field position, you make them you know, come from there into the field, you don't give them a short field, I think you got a really good chance to get under and win this ballgame. I don't think it'll be an offensive masterpiece by any stretch, but I do believe we are perfectly capable of going down there and winning this ballgame. I'm going to go down there and cover it, and we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I think, right, if I had again, if I had to call it today, I'm a little more optimistic about our chances than perhaps some other people are. All right, time for today's top ten list brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. That's CloseWithBlair, B-L-A-I-R, CloseWithBlair.com. Listen, I believe in doing business with Bulldogs whenever we can. And that's not to say there aren't some other people with other affiliations out there doing a good job. But I believe we should kind of take care of each other. Just my opinion. Uh, Blair will take care of you. You're not, you know, you're not just doing him a favor. You're doing yourself a favor because you're dealing with a mortgage professional that is in the top one percent in close ratio in the industry. Not just in Mississippi. Not just in Rankin County. Not in Tippa County. We're talking nationally. Works with Fairway Mortgage, one of the top five mortgage lenders in the United States. Blair's been doing this 21 years. Long time. Fan of this show, longtime Mississippi State guy, season ticket holder, multiple sports, has a place up here. This guy's committed. He's true maroon. Again, visit him at closeofblair.com. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, if you mention the Boneyard to him, you say, hey, Blair, I heard about you on the Boneyard, he's going to pay for your appraisal. How cool is that? That's about a $300 value. And if you've ever bought a house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's so much. There's so much expense when you do it. But Blair can navigate you through it. This is a guy that kind of specializes, too, you know, in difficult cases. Give him a call today or a text at 601-500-2344. 601-500-2344. That's closewithblair.com. All right, so we're going to go back to the uh, mid-'90s today. One of my favorite bands from the era. I really thought they changed a lot. When they hit the scene, when I heard the opening bars of our number one song, I was like, holy smokes, who is this? Where have they been? Because they weren't sad. They weren't staring at their shoes. They were out there just rocking, man. And you had this guy out here, this great singer, kind of leading the show by the name of Gavin Rossdale. That's right, we're talking about Bush. I saw Bush recently. I saw them in their heyday. I've seen them, I guess, three times now. And I saw them at Rocklahoma a couple years ago, and they were phenomenal. 
absolutely phenomenal. There's been, I think, a couple lineup changes, but you know, for the most part, you know, Gavin's kind of kept that you know carousel from running out of control. A couple of those guys retired. They didn't leave the band you know, because they were upset with Gavin, but they, you know, there was some age on them. They said, you know what, I, touring life is not for me, so they retired, and then he, he put together another good band. And so it's an exciting band for sure. So here's the top ten, and, and there's only a couple honorable mentions today. It's the song Greedy Fly off the Razorblade suitcase and then Alien, which was a bonus track on the initial album, 16 Stone. What's interesting about 16 Stone, and I read this yesterday, and I knew when they when they dropped that album that uh, people were talking about, all oh, the album almost didn't get released. And then you go back and look, they actually delivered the album in April, and then the record company didn't release it until December. And that was because they had to be convinced that there was some hits on the album. They didn't think there were any true radio singles, and so they didn't think they could promote the album. It turns out there were four top ten rock singles on that album, and all four of them are on this top ten. All right, number ten, going back a few years, actually a little bit deeper into the catalog. This is actually on uh, the Golden State album, which was the last album with the original lineup. It's the song The People We Love, Speed Kills. If you don't know it, familiarize yourself. I think you'll dig that one. And that's the thing, too. It's like, so after the first two albums, and we'll get to some of this a little bit later, you had kind of the classic Bush sound, if you could have a classic sound after two albums. They kind of experimented a little bit with album three, but on Golden State, they kind of went back to what they had done with the, the 16 Stone album, Razorblade Suitcase. And so if you're unfamiliar with the Golden State album, go back and check it out. I think you'll dig it. Okay, number nine, and this has come in more recent years, and it's uh, Flowers on a Grave. And uh, this has actually been a radio hit the last couple years. I dig it a lot. It is kind of got that haunting Rossdale vocal on it. But it was good to hear New Bush on the radio. Because, like, they went on hiatus for a while, and they came back. And, of course, everybody wanted to hear the hits. But uh, they're producing good music today. I would say that the best song, of the Bush era since they reformed is our number eight song, The Sound of Winter. Absolutely love that song. I think you will too. And so we're kind of kind of starting our list with uh, you know, maybe some songs you're not quite as familiar with. And that's one of the things I like to do on these lists is introduce some of the newer material. So when you go listen to this, you'll kind of hear some things. Okay, well, all right, now, now, now I kind of get it. These guys aren't retired. They're not done. They're not washed up. Gavin Rostow is a superstar. Number seven, and they used to play this in every sports venue in the world, it seemed, because of the opening riff. It's a little bit farther down my list than it probably would be many of you, but it's Machine Head. Number seven on our list, Machine Head, off the 16 Stone album. A great tune, for sure. It sounds great in the car. I just like some other songs better. Number six, off the third album, it's The Chemicals Between Us. And so they almost got a little Jesus Jonesy sounding on this album. You know, they kind of brought in some, um, some industrial elements. And then shortly after this, they actually had a remix album. If I remember correctly, it's called Reconstructed. I think that's right, Reconstructed. But anyway, they, they basically took a lot of their, their hits and made dance tracks out of them, kind of Depeche Mode sounding. And maybe you want to check that out. But The Chemicals Between Us, I thought, was the best song uh, off that third album. Number five, going back to the very first one, 
this was a number two hit for them. And if I remember correctly, they, you know, uh, MTV Live back then, there used to be this uh, live performance. I want it may have been a spring break performance, but they're out there playing. It's pouring down rain, and Gavin sang "Glycerine," and it's a great tune. You know, "Glycerine" is a weird name for a girl. If I got it, if I got to be honest, it's a great tune though. And I needed us more, you wanted us less. There's a lot of great lyrics in that in that track for sure. Number four, the lead single off the Razorblade Suitcase album, it swallowed one of their highest charting hits that wasn't on the first album. It's a great tune, still is a great tune, and holds up to this day. I think it really stands up. And so I think when we get down to the the final three, and I guess some of you might have Machine Head a little bit higher than me, but uh, I think the final three, I think most of us would agree, this is you know, these are the best three. Number three, it's little things, little things that kill. And uh, I love the vocal on this one. I love how aggressive the guitar is. That 16 Stone album was really a game changer for me in many respects. Like I was just kind of waiting for the next wave, you know, something great to happen in rock. And I kind and I got it with that first Bush album. It's like you know, this is it. This is who I've been waiting for. Went and saw them with the Goo Goo Dolls, and no doubt, uh, at uh, UNO Kiefer Arena in New Orleans, it was my first show after Ani was born. Took his mom down there. It took us forever to get there because traffic was so bad getting there from Mardi Gras. We missed uh, most of, no doubt. But uh, it was still a great time. I was there to see Bush. We hadn't done the Goo Goo Dolls yet either. Maybe, maybe we need to do the Goo Goo Dolls one day. Put that on the list, Roy. Maybe we'll work the Goo Goo Dolls in. But Little Things was great live. Absolutely great. Number two, I think this is an amazing song. I don't know that it gets played enough. Even when you like when you put on, um, you know, Sirius XM or whatever, and you, you pick the '90s rock tunes over there, I don't know that this one gets played enough. And it's "Come Down," number two on your list on today's top ten list is "Come Down." I don't want to come back down from this cloud. It's taken me all this time to find out what I need. Again, I think Gavin Rossdale, an underappreciated songwriter, but that's the thing too. When you see lineup changes and you see people still performing and still selling out venues and still selling records. A lot of times it's because they can write, and Gavin Rossdale can absolutely write. But number one, the one that started it all, I can see the video in my head. Like right now, I, I see those birds flying off the wire, right? But it's everything zen. Everything zen from Bush, the very first single off the very first album. And it's so hilarious to think that the record company almost didn't want to release the album 16 Stone, which is the best Bush album. I'm not going to sit here and suggest that it's not. But if I'm not mistaken, 6 million copies sold in the United States alone. Incredible. Incredible numbers for Bush. I'm going to double-check that because I think it's interesting because, you know, there's so many things out there that gets pushed out, you know, that you're like, oh, this is is great. Well, why why do you listen to it? Well, because it's on the radio. Not because I like it. Yeah, so let's look at the... uh, certifications here yeah i was absolutely wrecked six million six times platinum in the u.s and uh two times platinum in australia six times platinum in canada two times platinum in new zealand and it was only silver over in the united kingdom which is interesting very 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 interesting but huge success in the united states huge running down some of this other stuff too just these numbers on these these tracks before we move on. And so uh, Everything Zen peaked at number two. Come Down was a number one. 
Glycerine was the number one. And Machine Head was number four. Four top five singles off an album that the record company didn't think there was a single radio playable single. It's incredible. That's today's top ten list. If you have ideas for the top ten list, reach out, let me know. Happy to talk with you about that. We'll put it together. It may take us a little while. I've I've had several requests for Bush, and it's like I, I forget about it. And then I stumbled across some Bush stuff yesterday, and I was like, hey, have we done Bush? And I go back and look and say, no, we haven't done Bush. So we're doing Bush today. We didn't have Kenny Loggins. We did Kenny, and now you've got Bush. And so, again, thanks to Roy Samante putting these lists together for the uh, – the, put these lists on Spotify for you guys, and Izzy Mandelbaum for putting them on Apple Music. So it's out there for you. We're happy to do it, man, because so many people have messaged me and said, Steve, I forgot about these songs, or I forgot about this band. I haven't listened to them in ages. It's the gift of music, man. Happy to do it. And, again, Bush, one of my favorites – and I don't just want to say from the 90s, man. I mean, I still enjoy Bush. I think Gavin Rossdale is a real rock star. You know, he was married to Gwen Stefani for many years, you know, no doubt. And uh, they got to know each other on that same tour that I saw him on, which was really the first big tour for all those bands. You know, Goo Goo Dolls had been around for a while. But, you know, Bush came to the States, and they were immediately a headliner. That's one of the things we need in, in rock music today is there just there's kind of a you know a lack of headliners but um bush the real deal go check them out you'll enjoy them and again if you got ideas reach out let me know on all forms of social media at scout steve r next segment of the show brought to you by campus bookmark you guys know campus bookmark standing man miss kathy brown lovely talented Susie, candy everybody up there is great Miss Pam Minyard is there now. These are great people doing a great job for a great fan base. Outfit your family today in the latest in Maroon and White fashions by visiting campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays, and it's BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. And that'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than 50 bucks, absolutely incomplete. I'm going to tell you what, it's, it's about to be hoodie weather too, thank goodness. I love this time of year. You know, we get like two weeks of autumn. I love it, and I'm glad when it gets here and I enjoy it. And the next thing you know, you got to put your leather jacket on and and be cold around here. But um, you know, you need to go ahead and start getting some warmer warmer clothes. And when it never gets too too cold here, but uh, I'm excited about uh, what is to come. Again, CampusBookmart.net, your one stop shop for all your Mississippi State merchandising needs. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we won a national championship in baseball this year. We, we did. Yeah, that's right. It was us. It was Mississippi State. They're not going to come take the trophy from us. There's nobody out there. There's no other games to play. There's no, you know, there's no you know, complication. There's nothing out there that would ever suggest, oh, well, did Mississippi State really win? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And so we're back into fall baseball now. And uh, I don't know if you guys are keeping up with this. You know, uh, Gene Swindoll, Mike Nemeth, are out, they cover every scrimmage for us. Some of the other media's kind of come along here as of late. We've been doing it forever over at Gene's page. It's one of the things I think that separates us from a, a lot of other people is that you know, we cover Mississippi State year-round. And granted, we've got an army of people to do it. But I wanted to give you some numbers, too, that you know, through seven scrimmages, you know, kind of who's doing well and, you know, what's kind of happening with the team. So – I'm going to run down some names here that you may be familiar with. So, Logan Tanner right now is actually, you know, your leading hitter. Now, I have had some people tell me Logan Tanner is going to be a first-round draft pick. 
I believe it. We knew defensively what he could do. He took a big jump offensively last year. And through fall baseball, it looks like he has kind of picked up where he left off. One of the things that I'm happy to see is the strikeout numbers are down. Because everybody knows that he has killer power. And so a lot of people are going to try to get him with the slider and that sort of stuff. He's going to see a lot of spin. You know, we'll see what happens this year, you know, when, you know, kind of who hits around him. But Logan Tanner off to a really good start. 13 at bats. He's got seven hits, hitting 538. And he's walked seven times, struck out just once. Got a couple dingers as well. He is leading Mississippi State offensively in most statistical categories. Drew McGowan, you may recall, was last year's starting left fielder to begin the year and then ultimately you know, lost the job as Brad Cumbus and Braylon Skinner kind of worked their way in. You know, initially, Braylon Skinner was supposed to be the dude and, um, you know, and then breaks a bone in his hand and then opened the door. Drew McGowan steps in, and Drew had some big hits for us early in the year. Drew McGowan, 15 at bat, six hits, hitting 400, got three Ks, and uh, mostly singles, but, uh, you know, Drew's a guy with electric speed, too. A guy can really, really move. He's a great athlete. So we'll kind of see how things progress with him. Uh, Hunter Hines, one of uh, one of your newcomers. He's like, well, Steve, Hunter Hines. Yeah, that's right. Hunter Hines, a true freshman who is leading the freshman right now with a 375 batting average. How about that? And here's the number that jumps out to me. 16 at bats, just three Ks. Also has a home run. So this is a guy, obviously, that has pretty good pitch selection. I mean, think about it. He's the third highest batting average on the team. He's a true freshman. Pretty exciting stuff there. You said, well, Steve, tell me more about this Hunter Hines guy. Well, I'm happy to oblige you here. Hunter Hines has um, played for the East Coast Sox out of Madison Central. First baseman, 6'3 218 pounds. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, you know, that um, – He's not a little guy. He's a big guy, and you know that. You know what I'm. You know what I'm kind of getting heading around to here is that uh, we've had a lot of success with some little guys. Now all of a sudden we start getting some big guys out here. How do you know we're not going to be the '61 Yankees, right? But Hunter Hines coming and doing a great job for Mississippi State. I, I can see him being a DH or something. You got to find a way to get him in the lineup. You've got a big strapping guy like that that can recognize spin and put the ball in play. So, fourth on the list, Luke Hancock hitting 333. Again, the splits are ridiculous. He also uh, three Ks, but uh, Luke's putting the ball in play. Got the one home run, uh, three doubles on the year, uh, three RBI as well. Cam James hadn't played quite as much, but um, Cam's hitting 333 as well, and just one K. Just one K. Hadn't had as many at-bats as he missed a couple ball games, but uh, just a one K. And that's going to be really the difference for Cam as a three-hole hitter. You know, he is going to see a lot of off-speed, a lot of breaking stuff. They're not going to challenge him with a fastball, as, as Jack Leiter will attest. Cam James does to fastball what great fastball hitters do, and he explodes on them. That's exactly what happened when we were out in Omaha. And, and listen, Cam made a big jump last year. I think there's more in the tank. You guys know I've been a Cam James fan from the very beginning. I think Cam James has a chance to be one of the best hitters in the Southeastern Conference this year. So, Steve, what about Kellum Clark? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, Kellum is a guy, too, still got to work on, on pitch recognition. He's a guy, too, that sometimes struggles with that slider, for sure. But putting the ball in play. 
19 at-bats, six hits, three RBIs, one walk, five Ks. And so you want to see the strikeout numbers come down, but that's one, that's one of the things that you work on in fall camp, right, is you work on these things so it's not an issue for you later. And, and I'm going to tell you, the thing with Kellum is, it's just about at-bats. It's as simple as that. The guy's got all the talent in the world. It's just about at-bats. Getting him at-bats, letting him see spin, letting him learn to recognize how teams are going to attack him. Guy's going to be a star for us. He, I think, without a doubt, he is a double-digit home run guy this year. The best is yet to come for Kellum Clark. I think we all know that. Uh, Davis Mesh is a guy we expected to really challenge out there at second base. Wasn't quite sure what was going to happen out there, but uh, he is competing, absolutely competing. Uh, 16 at-bats for him, five hits, uh, just a couple of Ks, four doubles, which leads a team. That's pretty cool, right? All of a sudden, you got a middle infielder out there with some gap-to-gap power. Uh, putting the ball in play. And, you know, and, you know, in today's day and time of college baseball, you need a lot of doubles hitters. And Davis Mesh is a guy last year that was a big part of this team, even though he didn't play an awful lot down the stretch. There's a lot of expectations that he would be a guy for us. Hitting 313. Right there with him is transfer R.J. Yeager, also hitting 313. Uh, has a home run, also 5Ks for him. And, and you're gonna, there's going to be some swing and miss with power hitters. But 16 ABs, five hits, five RBIs. Uh, also got a hit by pitch there. But uh, he's a guy that's out there doing some things, too. Another newcomer that's, that's done pretty well is Gary Bain. Gary Bain, 13 at-bats, uh, four hits, hitting 308, 4K. He's got to bring that up just a little bit there. And, again, it's a pretty small sample size. But you got seven games. You can kind of see some guys that are kind of stepping in. Uh, Jeffrey Entz, a guy that we're really excited about. It's been clutch at times, but, uh, you know, it's kind of struggling with college pitching right now, hitting just 214 with nine Ks. But uh, I, I got big, big, big hopes for him uh, down the stretch. Don't think that he'll challenge this year you know, for a lot of playing time, but I think he is going to be a future middle infielder, a starter for Mississippi State. Tanner Leggett, last year's hero, uh, hitting two thirty five, And I, I think that's just kind of who he is. He's a guy that struggles with sliders, but, you know, you mess up with the fastball, he'll make you pay for it. He's a competitor. He'll get out there and grind out at bats for you. But, uh, you know, had the opportunity to move on, but uh, but he's hung around and come back, and he's competing for some playing time. Remember last year, there was a stretch there where he was your starting second baseman, then he was your starting third baseman. It's good to have a utility guy like him, not to mention just a guy that's a good dude, a good locker room guy, a guy that believes in Mississippi State. He's really grateful to be here. Lane Forsyth, you're starting shortstop. I struggled just a little bit, hitting about 200. The the strikeout numbers are still still a bit of a concern with six. Now, Slate Offord is a guy that's really competed at third base. That Really solid glove there, has some real power. But uh, this is a guy that we're really expecting some big things from. Hadn't hit especially well. He's just hitting 176 in his scrimmages, but he puts on a bit of a show in BP. Just a matter before he kind of figured those things out. Now, Jess Davis and Braywin Skinner are competing out there in center field. Uh, it's really close from what I understand. Skinner just hitting a buck 88. Jess Davis way down the list, just one hit through the fall, six Ks. So you've got a couple guys that are elite defenders, and you need somebody to step up here to put some things together offensively to kind of run off and take that. I don't think that's going to be settled until uh, we get into spring. And once we get into you know spring practice, I think that's when – when that'll, that'll kind of change for you. Uh, Corbin Grantham, Ty Grantham's kid, he's still here, contrary to popular belief. Yeah, he's still here. Uh, got a couple of hits, done a couple of things out there. But 
Uh, we got some guys out here that can swing the bats. You know, Von Siebert's a guy we're expecting some big things from. He struggled so far, just the, just one hit. But, uh, again, it's just ball baseball. But you kind of get a glimpse. You know, you, you want to see some of your regulars, you know, take a step forward. Now, the, the flip side of this is the pitching aspect of it. Most, a lot of our elite pitchers are kind of shut down for the fall. Not because they're hurt. We're just letting those guys rest. I think it's important to kind of understand that too. There's a lot of those guys out there that need some some opportunities to kind of rest. And so yesterday, Jack Walker threw. You guys are excited about Jack, right? Jack threw three innings, no runs, no hits, no walks, struck out five. How about that? Uh, Parker Stinnett out there throwing well. You know, he's got to, he's got to be a great guy for us late. He can't walk people, but he's got to be a guy late. Uh, hit max out at 94 yesterday. Taylor Montiel, a new player, 93. Jack Walker hitting right at 91. But, uh, yeah, you get a chance to go watch the Diamond Dogs out there. Go check them out. But uh, a lot of your pitchers, you know, Landon Sims, of course, throwing a bullpen. He and Preston Johnson, uh, a few of those guys, are going to work with Coach Foxhall but not, not see any live hitting in the fall. Those guys put up some big innings for us last year. And, you know, how are we going to piece it together on the back end? So a lot of discussion about Landon Sims being – you know, weekend starter for us. But when you have a dominant closer like that, I know you're kind of hesitant to move him. And so, you know, what's next in that regard? You know, what do we do? How do we kind of figure that out? Is it Preston Johnson? Right? Is it Walling? I know Walling came here expected to be a starter. He's had some control issues. You got to figure those things out. You know, but we've got some dudes that can pitch. And we've got the best pitching coach in America. And Scott Foxhall. I remember this time last year, you know, we, we were kind of going through the numbers and thinking, man, how are they going to figure this out? Who's going to pitch? And it's remarkable when you look back in hindsight and how well this thing was pieced together, pitching-wise. I remember something around this time last year that Scott Fox all told me. He said, I'll never make the mistake I made with Ethan Small again. I'm thinking, what, what, what was the mistake? I mean, he was the national pitcher of the year. He's first-round draft pick. Yeah, but he was out of gas when we got to Omaha. He was. And a lot of it's because we let him work deeper in ball games we didn't have to. And so this year, you know, it's like we're managing our guys early and people are like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand. Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter and all the guys at Ole Miss are throwing, you know, 350 pitches an outing. Why are we only going 90? What are we scared of? What's well, because it's a long season. It's a long season. And so anybody – that can be critical of Scott Foxhall's managing the pitchers last year. Just wasn't paying attention, not just to Mississippi State baseball, but college baseball as a whole. And so when Foxhall comes out and says that we're going to shut a few guys down for the fall, I think, hey, sounds good to me, Scott. What do you think? You know, Scott Foxhall is the guy that knows how to manage pitchers. And I'll, I'll tell you guys this too. Many of you aren't, maybe don't have a chance to be around Scott, but I'll tell you this. There's not a more humble guy walking around. Scott Foxall. This is a guy that is so incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be at Mississippi State. And he made mention to me when I interviewed him for, for Dogpile. And you need to go to dogpilethebook.com today and pre-order your copies of Dogpile. You can do that right now. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Scott and I talk about, you know, it's like you almost have this embarrassment of riches. And so then, the, you know, the, the pressure shifts to him as a coach. He's like, I've got all these great pictures. It's got to keep everybody healthy and push the right buttons. 
Where he said, it's a once-in-a-lifetime type experience. I mean, it's like you look at that, that staff and you think, you know what, we better go win big when you've got these guys available to you. And how many times have we saw we, we've seen that in our past where we have a lot of talent, but it just doesn't come together? And you look at the difficult situation with Eric Sarantola. You know, Eric Sarantola, you know, came here, you know, kind of highly recruited guy. We expect him to come in here and do well. Never really got on track. And if you found out as a staff that you know you're gonna you're not gonna have you're not gonna have the best of years from all of your guys, or your projected three starters. And people forget, well, Bednar didn't start the first month of the year. You forgot that? Yeah, me too. No, I looked it up. Came in and got some relief innings in. The next thing you know, we, you know, we rolled him into LSU. You know, Sarantola, of course, uh, you know, misses the trip to Texas, and then you know, it was kind of up and down. And then after LSU, he never started another game in a Bulldog uniform. But to hear Scott Fox all tell it, the biggest cheerleader on the team was Eric Sarantola. He didn't pout. He was always a team first guy. Now he wanted to pitch. But we simply couldn't trust him. So we put him out there in some relief appearances, and at times he did really well for us. But if I told you beginning of the year, okay, you're going to have a starting rotation of Christian McLeod, who was unhittable in 2020. And when they could hit him, they couldn't score against him. So, okay, well, that, you can have Christian McLeod on Friday. You have Will Badner on Saturday and Saratola on Sunday. You'd say, you know what, man, we may have the best rotation in the country. And there were some people – in college baseball circles that were saying Eric Sarantola would be a definite first-rounder. And then we get to the end of this thing, and McLeod ends up being the number two guy down the stretch. Bednar becomes the ace. Sarantola doesn't pitch. And Christian McLeod, you know, God, God bless Christian McLeod. What a great guy he is. You know, he just wasn't his best down the stretch. And if I had told you that, hey, we're going go to we're gonna go to Omaha – and Christian McLeod is going to lose both of his starts, and Sarantola is not even going to make the roster. What kind of chances would you have given us? That's good coaching, man. That's good coaching. Those guys know what they're doing. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by Portico. I told you guys before, if I was moving to Starkville now, I would move to Portico. I really like it over there. I mean, I do. I had somebody over the weekend say, Hey, if you ever want to sell your house, just give me a price. And t- let me tell you, it's tempting sometimes. It really is. I don't, I don't need this much house anymore. I like it here. I do. I don't like being so far from town sometimes, but I do like it here. But if I was moving, I'd move to Portico. I think it'd be a very good decision because, number one, yeah, I spend so much time on campus. You know, right now I'm like 20 minutes away. I'd be like a minute, 1.1 miles from campus. There at Mississippi State. I mean, it's like it, you basically in your backyard. And it's on the right side of campus, right? It's on the quiet side of campus. It's on the back side of campus. You got that great Walmart neighborhood market out there. You can get a two-bedroom, two-bath home there, up to four-bedroom, four-bath home. It's a great neighborhood, very easy to get to. You turn off of 82 onto 12, like going to campus. The very first ride is Pat Station Road. That'll take you to Portico. Again, just 1.1 miles from campus. Got that great walking trail out there. Really cool place, man. If you're thinking of retiring or perhaps uh, making the full-time move here or even maybe looking for an investment property, give my friend and your friend, a friend to the world, Brooks Bryan. Give Brooks a call at 601-416-8075. 
601-416-8075. And let me tell you something about Brooks. This is a guy that's committed to Mississippi State. He's committed to start. We try to make it a better place to live. You're going to be glad you got involved with Brooks Bryan. If you're driving right now and say, you know what, I, I do want to get some information about that place, but I don't have time to write down a number. Well, shoot me a message. I'll be happy to send it to you. Again, that's Brooks Bryan, who is my second favorite Bryan in the family. Maybe third, depending on what day it is. Brooks, a great guy, great friend. Be a great friend to you, too. Make Portico your next move. All right. So let's talk about the 2000 snowball. I wanted to allocate a little more time to this one today just because uh, it was such a unique ball game. So you had Jackie Sherrill, you know, playing against R.C. Slocum. I guess coaching again. They didn't, they didn't get there and play. Jackie would have played, I promise you. Um, so, yeah, so you had, you know, Jackie, the former A&M coach, coaching against his replacement. So that was an interesting subplot to the game. And, and, and the truth of the matter is we shouldn't have been in the Independence Bowl that year. We got screwed in the SEC Bowl tie-ins that year. We were too good to be in the Independence Bowl. We got shafted. It should have been in the Florida Bowl game, but we weren't. We could have pouted, but we didn't. And I think the fact that we were playing A&M allowed us to really lock in. Because, you listen, Jackie Sherrill was a, a player's coach. Now, would he jump in their hindquarters when they messed up and hold them accountable? He absolutely would. But even to this day, you hear those former players talk about Jackie with just such reverence. They wanted to go win and play hard for him. And you know as well as I do, there was a revenge factor involved in this ballgame. Jackie, one of the first people, if I'm not mistaken, the first $3 million man in college football. I believe that's correct. And so he goes out there to A&M, and he, you know, it's, it's interesting. I had this discussion with a friend over the weekend. We are talking about Jackie. You know, Jackie Sherrill was a guy that stuck it to everybody, right? You go back to his days when he's at Pitt. In Penn State, I mean, it was really kind of the glory years of Joe Paterno at Penn State. And then Jackie goes up there and just needles them to death and, and makes the Pitt Panthers one of the best teams in college football. The Pitt Panthers. Well, then he was the hottest name in the coach, coaching profession at the time. So A&M goes and signs him. A&M had been struggling a little bit. Texas was rolling. They go hire Jackie. What does Jackie do? He beats Texas. Regularly. And upset the, the Longhorn donors to the point that they could not wait to get rid of him. Does that sound familiar? So then Jackie's out of football for a couple of years. We kind of go dig Jackie up. Say, hey, hey, Jack, let's go. You want to coach football again? He comes here. What does he do? Is he makes it a habit of beating Ole Miss. What, he win seven of the first ten? I think that's right. It's absolutely come out there and just lit them up. And as I'll say this, but I think it, it's probably apropos. Jackie Sherrill is the kind of guy that will spit in your face and then dare you to spit back. That's the kind of guy he is. He did it to Joe Paterno. He did it to Texas. Did it at Ole Miss. It's like everywhere he goes, it's like he kind of gets that underdog. I like he's more comfortable being in that role. It's like, well, let's just go show him, guys. And, and he did it. He did it. All he did at Mississippi State was win. And uh, for those of you that don't know, yeah, the big turning point in many respects in the rivalry in the modern era is when we, went, we go win the, uh, the West and celebrate it at Vault Hemingway Stadium. You know, we beat 
Arkansas, and all we had to do was go beat Ole Miss, who was uh, – you know, Mary Miller wasn't going to play, and so, we, you know, we, we knew it wasn't going to be a really competitive ball game. Um, but we go in and we parade the uh, Golden Egg around Vaught-Hemingway Stadium on our way to Atlanta, and that, that was just the one thing that a lot of Ole Miss donors just couldn't take care of. You know, it wasn't long after that we had, uh, you know, private investigators following some of our coaches around. There's a lot of craziness that went on with that. A lot of, and my hope is one day I can write that story. And I don't mean in an article. I, I want to write a book about that. And uh, I've talked to a couple people about it. I, I, eventually, I want to get that story out there. All that really went on with the NCAA investigation in Mississippi State back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, kind of what all went on. I, I think that story needs to be told, not just for my generation, but the ones that preceded me and the ones that have followed me. I think everybody needs to know because there are some things that I have been told there are some documents that have been shared with me. I've seen some things that will absolutely make your skin crawl. It's like I, I, I laugh when I read these things. Like I see this social media banter. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, all, this is all that happened at Ole Miss with this case. And, you know, we just had a kid sleeping on a, a coach's couch. And then they want to blame Mississippi State people for those things happening. Let me just tell you this. There's some things that happened – to Mississippi State when Jackie Sherrill was here on the other side of this ledger that um, will really get you fired up. And so my hope is one day I can write that. Yeah, Maybe next year, maybe the next year, I, I don't know. But I would love to be able to write that story once and for all. I, I think that's a book too, you know, because of the fact. Here's the thing that's like all these people talk about, you know, what a shady character Jackie was in college football, but he's never had a formal charge from NCAA. Not once. Not once. Now – you know, to hear the Bolsheviks of the world out there tell their story, you know, they say, oh, yeah, well, he's always done this. Never a formal charge. And then, uh, you know, when they did go after him here at Mississippi State, ultimately he filed a lawsuit to clear his name, and NCAA ended up selling the case with him. Actually went to trial. It wasn't like, well, let's just pay him off and be done with it. It goes to trial, and in the middle of testimony, and Jim Wade and those guys are just carving up Joe Meyer carving those guys up on a stand and next thing you know they figure out you know what we better settle this thing <laughs> we, we better get out of this before there's trouble but uh before things really went bad for us you know, towards the uh, you know the end is jackie wins a 2000 snowball and um last bowl win you know for jackie Sherrill, and it was big for us and again it was big because of the fact that uh you know we were a good team now, one of the subplots in this whole ball game, too, a lot of people have forgotten about, is our All-American corner, Fred Smoot, was academically ineligible to play. We didn't find out until, uh, you know, I guess bowl camp started. He wasn't going to be able to play, which is a huge disappointment. Because we you know, A&M was a good team, too. Not, not a, you know, necessarily a prolific passing team. They're a good team. So a young man by the name of Marco Miner, from Natchez, Mississippi, gets his first collegiate start. And he played a factor, to say the least. So AM gets out to a great start in this ballgame. Whitaker runs for nine to give them a 7 nothing lead. And the next thing you know, they've got it again, Jamar Toombs. Remember him? Oh, my gosh, that guy was a phenomenal running back at AM. A four-yard run makes it 14 nothing at the end of one. And it really felt like we were in trouble. I mean, I, I don't know how you guys felt when you were watching it, but it really felt like, you know, we're not able to get our footing. Desenzo Miller just couldn't get going. 
He did, I mean, just couldn't get going. He was flipping and sliding out there. But Toombs is running pretty well. So we adjusted, and all of a sudden started using Dante Walker, who was really more of a straight-line runner for us. You know, Desenzo needed to be able to kind of make people miss. But, you know, Dante was the guy that's put his foot in the ground and run. So you had these two, you know, jumbo backs out here just kind of teeing off. And then Dante goes 40 yards to get State in the ballgame, 14-7. We come, we get a stop, we go right back down, and we score again just before the half. Um, touchdown pass, Desenzo Miller. And even then, he did the Desenzo shake, even though it was that cold. So it's 14-14. And then for some reason, uh, we decide some silly kick. Uh, John Michael Marlin, I'll never understand this, but um, – I don't know why we just didn't try to kick it deep. But anyway, we make a mistake here. Give them good field position. They make a little bit of a drive here, and then they throw one up for grabs. You know, they take a shot here. And Marco Miner is there, and Ferguson shoves him in the back. It should have been offensive pass interference. They don't call it. A&M scores. They miss the extra point, which proved to be important later. Made it a 20-14 to ball game. But even then, we felt like we're okay. We're we're mad. We're mad because we we botched a kick, and then we get shoved down from behind, and they're gifted a touchdown. I mean, if they call OPI right there, we'd go into the half 14-all. Third quarter was pretty uneventful. And, guys, it was snowing so bad at this point. It was like nothing we'd ever seen, especially in the South. And then Dante Walker scores again. We make our extra point, Scott Westerfield, thank you very much, 21-20. We get into the fourth, and this is when the fun really begins. What a wild quarter this was. If you can find this game online, I encourage you to go back and watch it, especially since you know Mississippi State won. But this fourth quarter was absolutely crazy. Okay, so they make a touchdown pass uh, to Johnson. They go for two. They make it. Now it's 28-21. Then Jamar Toombs scores again. And so now A&M has gone up 14 points for the second straight time in the game. And at this point, I think we all thought this thing is over. This thing is over. Now, Jamar Toombs to this point had two touchdowns. Dante Walker answered him on the very next drive with a 32-yard run to bring State within a point to, within a touchdown at 35-28. Now, here's the thing that uh, is crazy about media and that sort of stuff. So Jamar Toombs is falsely credited with being the first guy to run for three touchdowns in the Independence Bowl. He was not. He was the second. It just happened to be in the same game. Dante Walker from Mississippi State holds the the true distinction of being the first player in, in Independence Bowl history to run for three touchdowns in a game, the first to ever do it. That's not what the media report said, but that's what actually happened. All right, so... We get the ball back. Uh, we drive, and here's the thing too. I mentioned Marco Miner. A and M has a chance to salt this game away. If I'm not mistaken, it was Willie Blade that came knifing through, kind of forced an errant pass, and Marco Miner picks it off. In his first collegiate start, a guy that wouldn't wouldn't have been out there had Fred Smoot done his homework. But Marco Miner picks it off, the pride of Natchez, Mississippi. And we cash right in. Donald Lee with a three-yard touchdown catch from Wayne Matkin to make it 35-35. And again, Westerfield true on the field, on the extra point. Thank you so much, Scott. So they try to put some things together. They get out there and uh, basically start playing for overtime. 
And so we knew we were going to get some free football here. And then one of the most incredible things that's happened in Mississippi State sports happened. And if you – I'm going to take you through it here. So the very first play of overtime, Jamar Toombs runs 25 yards in for the score, becoming the second player in Independence Bowl history to run for three touchdowns in a game. The second player. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, so they're going to line up for the kick an extra point. Willie Blade knifes through and blocks the extra point. And Eugene Clinton, who'd come off the edge, scoops it up. He's running along. A&M's got one defender there. And as they're tackling Eugene, he flips it to Julius Griffith. And this is the greatest play in Julius Griffith's career. Now, of course, he was the, uh, the cousin of uh, Pee Wee Griffith, better known as Slovakia Griffith, and the younger brother of Justin Griffith, who went on to play in the National Football League, one of the best fullbacks we ever had. But this is Julius Griffith running down the field for a two-point conversion. Makes it a 41-37 game. So you knew a touchdown would win it. We didn't have to kick the extra point. A field goal wouldn't get us there. But all we had to do was go score. And ultimately we do. Wayne Madkin goes in from six yards out, and we win 43-41 to cap. One of the best bowl wins in Mississippi State history and probably the most memorable Independence Bowl of all time. I don't know if you guys know this too, but Texas A&M, not really good in bowl games. I don't know if you know that. If I'm, if I'm looking at my numbers here. I think I'd written some things down. Um, A&M, when they lost to Mississippi State, fell to 2-8 and eight in bowl games. R.C. Slocum had been a big winner, and they were 2-8 and eight in bowl games under that stretch. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy to think about that. But a great game and a great memory. And many of you are probably just thawing out from that game. You know, it's like it was kind of unexpected. It really wasn't in the forecast. We knew there was going to be some some cold weather. We never expected that. And then you had the, uh, you know, the jet stream change a little bit. Next thing you know, right as the game opened, <laughs> it was incredible to see that snowfall. And you think there's no way this is going to go. It, guys, it snowed the whole game. It never thinned up. It never slowed down. It was windy and snowy. 36,974 people paid to see it. Mississippi State, of course, overcomes two 14-point deficits to win the game in a very incredible way. It's, it's just one of those things to think about. Okay, so we block an extra point, we run it back, and then we go. We get the touchdown. Yeah, that's what happens. It's pretty crazy. It's just it's like and I think about some of those names that were involved in those plays. Desenzo Miller, one of the most beloved Bulldogs of all time. Dante Walker, former number one player in America from Clinton High School. Rated the number one player in the country regardless of position. Again, Mississippi State. Willie Blade. Willie Blade. Got a, played pro football for us. And that, that was We talk about great defensive fronts. You know, that group in the late 90s. You know, Willie Blade and Connor Stevens and Mario Hagan. Some good-looking guys on that group, to say the least. Those guys could really go out there and play. Jackie knew how to recruit players that could control the line of scrimmage. And these are names that, uh, you know, kind of royalty does. And then, again, you think Marco Minor and Julius Griffith kind of footnotes in Mississippi State football history. 
There's Marco making the pick to set up the game-time touchdown. And Julius Griffith running back the two-point conversion. So everybody played a role. Everybody. Pretty remarkable stuff, uh, to say the least. So I wanted to go back and talk about that because I was thinking about I mean, what's what's the best game? Because we beat them some, they beat us some. That's the best one. That that's the most memorable Mississippi State uh, Texas A and M game. I think we'd all agree with that. So uh, so here's the deal. So I'll be back on Friday and we'll, and we'll pick the weekend. If you are in uh, Starkville and a member of the Starkville Touchdown Club, I'll be speaking there Thursday night. I'll be out of town today, so you probably won't see as much of me. Uh, maybe on the message boards, uh, just trying to get some things done. A lot of people continue to ask about Dogpile. So we don't have a delivery date yet. We just continue to be assured that it'll be here before Christmas. You know, expecting, you know, late November, maybe even be in early December. But uh, if you're looking to get those books for Christmas, let me encourage you. You need to pre-order. Go to dogpilethebook.com because here's what's going to happen. Is I'm going to have somebody message me like the week of Christmas. Oh, my gosh, I forgot to do this, Steve. Do you guys have any books? Well, first of all, uh, there aren't any books at my house. I guess there's a few copies of Blooms of Oleander around here. Uh, but it's not like this is a self-published book where I just got a garage full of books and I'm just, you know, piecemealing this thing out. You know, all that's housed at a warehouse somewhere. And so I can't save you a book. You're going to have to order and purchase a book yourself at dogpilethebook.com. That's how you're going to make sure you get a book in time for Christmas. Now, there are going to be subsequent printings, Right. We're going to do some some game day signings during baseball season. So this is a book that's going to be kind of evergreen. But uh, it's going to be really, really busy for me in December once the book is on the market, trying to get out and support so many of these great real um, retailers to support me. I'll be doing a lot of book signings, but it's all going to be in the state of Mississippi in December, trying to support our state and our people here in the state of Mississippi. And we'll branch out some we get into uh, – we get into college baseball season, I'm sure. You know, when I go on the road and do some of those, uh, you know, road trips, maybe we'll kind of coordinate with some of those people and uh, be able to bring the book signings out there. I'm happy to do it, but uh, it does take some logistics to make those things happen. And again, about once a week, I have somebody that messages me about Blooms of Oleander. Very simple. Order it through your local bookstore or go to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com or Books of Me, and you can order it there. Uh, it's out there and uh, doing really well. And I want to thank you guys so much for your support. But every other book can be bought at dogpiledthebook.com. If you're looking for Stark Villains gear, and you should be, go to starkvillains.com. You can get a Stark Villain t-shirt or hoodie. We talked about it being hoodie wetter soon. Uh, go ahead and order yourself a Stark Villain hoodie. I think it's pretty dope. I actually all the trademark on that. It's on Stark Villain. So we'll see what happens with that kind of moving forward. All that gear is uh, officially licensed. Uh, by the United States Patent Office. How about that? How about that? Sitting here looking at it right now. From the United States Patent and Trademark Office, Stark Villain is trademarked, and I own the trademark. All right, so let's get ready to get out of here. Again, on Friday, we'll, we'll preview the weekend. It's like I told myself last week after we lost to LSU the way we did. It's like, you know, I, I, I'm sad, but I'm not mad. You know, so I feel like we let one get away, but I feel like, you know, we went toe-to-toe with one of the most talented teams in the country, and we outplayed them and should have beat them. I don't think A&M is as talented as LSU, and, yeah, they're playing at their place, but if we go down there and take care of the football, let's go say we get a start against them like we did against the University of Georgia last year. We go down there and we put the ball in the end zone. We're going to beat A&M. 
I think if you get any separation in this game and force Calzana to beat you, I think that he will give you the football game. I think it's as simple as that. I think the game is simply moving too fast for him. And I think Zach Arnett can speed him up and force him into some plays. So we, we might even need a defensive touchdown to win the game. You know, A&M defense is decent. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're, they're better than decent. Those guys are really good. So, again, I expect a low-scoring game. But I like Mississippi State's chances today. I think we got the better quarterback. And usually the team with the better quarterback wins. And I read a lot of things on social media that aren't rooted in fact. And it's like, you know, something happens and – Oh, well, this guy's terrible. I heard some guys yelling at the ball game. Get number two out of the ball game. I was thinking to myself, man, just sit down, okay? That They're not going to make any decisions based off you yelling at the coaches. But be that as it may, we got another game to play. You know what? And if we don't win this one, it's not the end of the world. But, man, it would really boost everybody's spirits if we could win this one. And we need it. we got to get Bo eligible. And we know we're going to have to upset somebody along the way. So let's go ahead and get that taken care of. Let's get back on track. Let's go win a ball game. And uh, against a nasty ranked opponent, they shouldn't be, but they are. Let's go down there and make some things happen. I, I, again, Zach Arnett really gave A&M some trouble last year, even with Kellen Mond and a veteran uh, offensive line. So what will he do this year, you know, with kind of a rebuilt offensive line and, you know, a younger quarterback out there just kind of getting a sense of what college football is all about. That's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for your time, your patience, and all your support of the Boneyard all these many years. Until next time. Let's all live our lives in a way we'll make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live.